Well, for our scripture reading tonight, we're gonna be looking at Luke chapter one, verses 26 through 38. So let me invite you to turn over there. If you're in the book of Psalms, then you're gonna turn to the right. So Luke chapter one, verses 26 through 38, it's on page 1,557 in the Pew Bibles. 1557 in the Pew Bibles. Listen as I read God's word. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you are, who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening, everyone. It's great to be together with you tonight. Uh, I'm grateful to be here. My name is John. I serve as the lead pastor here at Elmwood, and it was actually two years ago since we were able to sit together in the same room. Uh, I had COVID last Christmas and a bunch of other exposures in our church family, and so we did something online, which was great um, in a pinch, but I think we all know that being in the room is just so much better, and there's something different about being together than being at home in front of a TV screen. So I'm grateful to be here together with you tonight. As we look at this passage, I want to ask you to bow with me for a moment of prayer. Lord, we pray that as we think about the meaning of Jesus' birth here tonight, that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and open hearts to receive what it is that you would have for us. Lord, we know that there are people here from a variety of different backgrounds, different spiritual places and places in their spiritual journey, and Lord, we just ask that you would meet each of us where we are. We trust, Lord, that you are able to do that. We trust that you, uh, that you love us, that you want what is best for us, and so we ask that you would help us see Jesus clearly tonight. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, surprises can be very good, or surprises can be very bad. Let's start with the bad ones. Uh, if you are a homeowner, you probably have experienced uh, some un unpleasant surprises as you have lived in your house for any length of time. Uh, for us, one of those unpleasant experiences, uh, one of those bad surprises, is that we have water that backs up into our basement. 
And this is because the main water drain that goes out from our house to the main city sewer line uh, has a pretty substantial dip in it. And so stuff just eventually over time gets sort of clogged up in there. And then if we don't uh, get out our industrial snake and snake it out every couple months, we walk down in the basement and go to do laundry or go to get something out of the chest freezer and find out that there is water on the floor in the laundry room or there's water that's reached out to the carpet. And not a fun, not a fun pleasant experience, not the kind of surprise that you want. But there's also surprises that are very good. One of the games that we like to play in our family is uh, we we have a three-year-old and an almost five-year-old, and they love it when I chase them around and scare them. Okay, this is uh, this is their idea, by the way. Okay, so <laughs> they they want me to do this. I think it may have started with me wanting to do it, but it's at the place where they they love it, they enjoy it. We've got a place in our house where between the kitchen and the living room and the hallway, you can sort of run around in a big circle. And so uh, I begin chasing them, and then I will duck off into a bedroom. Or I will turn around as they've run ahead of me and they don't know that I'm uh, doing this, but then I turn around and I meet them around the corner and I jump out and rah, and I scare them. And you can tell that they're actually like, physically you can see that they're, that they're really scared. <laughs> but also they're laughing because they love it. It's a surprise to them, but it's a good kind of surprise. So there's bad surprises, there's good surprises, and there's surprises that also uh, we don't really know what to think about it. We don't know if it's really good or bad. Like someone shows up at your door who's a uh, longtime family friend who you haven't seen for a long time. They live out of state. They're almost never here. And they happen to be in town and they show up and they knock on your door. And you're thinking to yourself, okay, I'm thrilled to see you and I want to spend hours just talking with you. But also, I'm kind of embarrassed at the condition of my home right now. And I'm not really sure if I want to, if I want to actually let you in. So there's surprises that can feel, uh, we're not sure if it feels good or bad. I suspect that as Mary received this announcement from the angel, uh, this very surprising announcement, I suspect that she probably found herself in that category of not knowing what really to think about this. On the one hand, she was feeling joy, and she was feeling excitement. And on the other hand, the text does tell us that she was greatly troubled. (laughs) So simultaneously, she's trying to put together these feelings, these emotions of this is incredible news and also I'm horrified about this at the same time. This announcement that came to her was a complete surprise. And as we spend just a few moments looking at this here tonight, what I want to do is I wanted to spend some time uh, looking at not just the, the surprising announcement, but the way that this announcement shows us, it leads us to the surprising way that God brings about his deliverance. So, As we look at the passage today, let's just observe two surprising things that we see. Number one is God works through the least likely people. This is one of the surprising elements of this announcement, is God works through the least likely people. If you've been here on Sunday mornings, you know that we're going through a series of messages leading up to tonight, actually, where we're looking at the the women that are included, that are named in the genealogy of Jesus, the family tree of Jesus, that you find in the book of Matthew chapter 1. And as we've been looking at that, what we've been observing is that the kind of people you would expect to find in the family tree of the Savior of the world, those people are nowhere to be found. The kinds of people that we would expect to find in the family tree of the Son of God are people who are probably just a little bit more spiritual than the average person. 
the people we'd expect to find are people that have some sort of special connection with God that other people just simply don't have. The kind of people that you may expect to find in the family tree of the Son of God would be people who are maybe powerful, influential, people who are wealthy. We would expect to find spiritual heroes in that family. And yet, as we've seen throughout the series and as we're going to see here tonight, those are not the kind of people that you find in the family tree, in the family line of God's deliverer, his savior. The people that you find in the family tree of Jesus are people whose lives are kind of a mess. They're unexpected people. They're unlikely people. They're not people who are spiritually or morally superior to the other people around them. They're people whose lives are a mess. They're people who have significant areas of brokenness, hurt, pain. They're people who are vulnerable, people who are taken advantage of. These are the kinds of people that we find in the family tree of the Savior of the world. And what that shows us is that God works through the most unlikely people. And we see that with Mary. We're told about Mary that she is from a little town called Nazareth in the region of Galilee. Now, the region of Galilee was on the northern part of the land of Israel. And Nazareth was this teeny little, kind of dinky little town, this little village that was kind of off to the side. And so the region of Galilee was in the north part of the country, whereas the capital city of Jerusalem, where most of the religious leaders and the religious elites of the Jewish people lived, they lived down there. And there was a perception of those people who lived up in the region of Galilee, which is right on the outskirts of town, as it were. There was a perception that those people are corrupt. Those people are unclean. Those people are defiled because they are much more closely intermixed with Gentiles, with people who are not Jewish, with people from maybe other faiths or other religious practices. And so there was a perception of them that they were sort of, they're just, were, they were not kosher. Those people who live up there. It's actually funny. There's a, there's a story at the beginning of the book of John where there's two brothers that are talking to each other. And one of the brothers says to him, to his other brother, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote. So this brother says to his brother, hey, we found God's deliverer. God's Messiah is here. And he tells who it is, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. To which the brother replies, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? So you get the perception that was out there about people from Nazareth. People from Nazareth there? Really? God's deliverer, the savior of the world, is going to come from someplace like that? And that's precisely the point. God's deliverer does not come from the capital city of Jerusalem, from a prominent, wealthy, religiously elite family. The savior of the world comes to Mary and Joseph, these sort of nobodies from this dinky little town that's the butt of people's jokes. Not only is she from Galilee, Nazareth and Galilee, we also see what makes her unlikely is that she is also an unmarried teenager. It would have been culturally appropriate. This is just the way that their culture operated was at about the age of 14 or 15 or 16, uh, typically women would be married off to somebody. And so she's an unmarried teenage girl which means that by God choosing to make her the mother of Jesus, by God choosing to bring her into the family line of the Savior by causing her to be the mother of the Savior of the world, 
God is putting her in a position of perceived scandal. Because other people would have looked at this unmarried teenage girl and said, oh, she's out sleeping around. Oh, she's that kind of girl. She's promiscuous. And so she's being put in a position of perceived scandal, even though she's not done anything wrong. Now, God could have chosen a different family, couldn't he? And actually, there's a precedent. If you're familiar with the story of the Bible, you know that there's a precedent for God providing children who were born miraculously. We see this with Abraham. Abraham and his wife Sarah are too old. God provides, uh, they're too old and they're infertile. She can't have babies physically. And God provides a child for them. Just in chapter one of Luke, we see Zechariah and we see Elizabeth. And they are too old. They've never been able to have children. And God provides a child for them miraculously. So there's a precedent throughout scripture of God providing a child of miraculous birth. What's unique about this situation is that it's to a virgin. It's to an unmarried teenage girl. And so God puts her in this position of perceived scandal. And I think it's interesting that two times the angel says, you are highly favored by God. So what it means for Mary to be highly favored by God is not only that she gets to have this great joy of being the mother of Jesus, but she also, being highly favored by God means she's put in a position like this, where she's going to be misunderstood. Her reputation in the community is going to be completely shredded and destroyed. There may be people who never come around to the fact that she is claiming that she is going to give birth to the Messiah and that she's pregnant by God. But this is precisely the point. God takes the least likely people and he works through them. And Mary is proof of that. We not only see that God works through the least likely people, we also see that God accomplishes our deliverance in the least likely way. Listen to what the angel says to her, starting in verse 30. The angel said, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. As you listen to the identity of the child being given to Mary, you recognize pretty quickly that this is no ordinary child. This is no ordinary child, and this is incredible news for Mary to receive this. But of course, there's one question that exists in her mind, and that is, okay, but how? She says in verse 34, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel responds by telling her, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. In other words, God himself is going to do this. The language of overshadowing is the same language that's used in the Old Testament when it talks about the cloud of God's presence overshadowing, coming down on the temple or the tabernacle. And so the point that the angel is making here is that the same God who spoke life into existence, as we read about in Genesis 1, is the same God who can speak life into existence inside of your womb. And he's going to do it. This child that is promised to her is the king. This child is the deliverer that God's people have waited for, except for it turns out that he's not exactly the kind of deliverer that they had expected. What they were hoping for was an earthly political leader. 
They were hoping for an earthly military leader who would come and overthrow the Romans and help them reestablish the nation of Israel the way that it used to be in the good old days. That's what they were hoping for. But what they got instead was someone who was born to nobody parents in the middle of a nowhere town that people made fun of. What they got was someone who was not wealthy, who was not prominent, who was not an influencer, someone who was from a poor family, someone who was from a family that we're told was able to afford two little birds as a sacrifice to dedicate him. So he comes from a poor family. He's a man of sorrows. He's a suffering servant. What they received was a savior who let himself be killed by the Romans instead of coming to kill the Romans like they wanted him to do. They received a savior who rescued them from death by dying for them. And this is, this is all a part of God's plan. This is, this is not plan B when things began to fall apart. This is plan A. This is exactly how God designed it. Most of the Jewish people in the first century saw Jesus as this little boy grew up, and as he went to the cross and as he suffered and died, they saw that as a sign of his failure, not as a sign of his success. And yet, we see that this is the way God works. This is God's plan. He takes the unlikely people, and then he brings about our salvation in the most unlikely way. The unlikely way that God brought about our deliverance is that he took on human flesh. The creator who spoke our world into existence chose to take on humanity, chose to become a part of his created world and share in all of the brokenness. Yes, all of the joys, all of the the experiences, all the good things about life in our world, but he also experienced all of the, the, the dirtiness and the messiness and the ugliness of it. God himself did not remain distant from us in the brokenness of our world, but rather he took on human flesh and chose to come near to us. He did not ask us to find a way to get to him. He chose to come to us. And then he died at the hands of sinful people so that we could be freed from the power of sin and death. So that ultimately those things would not have power over us, that they would not have the last word. And so this is the unlikely way that God brought about our deliverance. We're invited by this passage here tonight. We're invited by this passage not only just to see the fact that God works through the least likely people and that God accomplishes our deliverance in the least likely way. We're called not only just to see that, but also to respond to it. We're called to join Mary in her response of faith after being given this incredible announcement of the birth of her son. In verse 38, she says simply, I am the Lord's servant. She responds in faith. Now, she had no idea what it was she was saying yes to. She had not a clue. There was, I'm sure, a bunch of things swirling around her mind. What's it going to be like? What's it going to look like? But she had no idea. She had no idea the joy that would be hers in getting to raise the Savior of the world. She had no idea the joy of being able to be his parent. And at the same time, she had no idea the depth of the pain 
and the difficulty that it would be for her to be Jesus' mother. She had no idea that one day she would hold the lifeless body of her son, who was beaten beyond recognition and executed by the religious leaders and the Roman Empire. She, would have, she has no idea in this moment that that is ahead of her. She doesn't know the joys. She doesn't know the pain of it. But what she does is she says, yes. She says, I am the Lord's servant. She submits herself to the plan of God. She submits herself to the will of God for her life, even though she doesn't right now know exactly what it means. And just to be clear about this, she didn't submit just to a plan. She submitted to the God who lovingly crafted that plan. She submitted herself to him knowing who he is, knowing that he loves her, knowing that he is for her. She submitted herself to her God and his plan, not just to the plan itself. And so we, from this text, we are invited in the same way to have the same response of faith. Every single one of us here has the opportunity, like she had, to embrace the Savior, to submit ourselves to the plan of God, to submit ourselves to his will and what he would want for us, to trust his son Jesus. And of course, like her, we have no idea what that means. When we choose to follow Jesus, we have no idea the joys that will come. And we also have no idea the difficulty that will also come as a result of following him. But like Mary, we can, we can gladly submit to him because we know him. We're not just submitting to his plan for us, we're submitting to him. And we know who he is. Because as we see here in this passage, and as we read the rest of the book of Luke, and we see that this little baby grows up and he suffers and he dies for us, we know, we know from his life that God loves us. He was willing to take on human flesh and to join us in our humanity and to suffer and to die for us. And so we know that he loves us. And so for that reason, we can trust him in anything. And we can have that same response of faith that Mary has. And that response of faith, knowing who he is and submitting ourselves to him, that is what can fill us with hope this Christmas season. As we hear this announcement of the birth of Jesus, we can respond by looking forward to not just Jesus in the manger, but we can also look forward to his death on the cross. And that's what we do each time we gather here at Elmwood. We come to the communion table and we get to celebrate and remember not just that Jesus was born, but that Jesus was born for a purpose. And that was to make a way for us to be restored in relationship to God, to make a way for us to be forgiven of our sin and our idolatry, for us to be uh, made new, to be made whole again in and through the person of Jesus. And so we get to come and celebrate Christ at the communion table today. As we do, I want to allow just a few moments of uh, silent space for reflection and confession.
Merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thoughts, in word, and deed, by the things that we have done as well as by the things that we have left undone. We confess, Lord, that we have not loved you with our whole heart, mind, and strength, and we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. In your mercy, we pray that you would forgive what we have been. We pray that you would help us amend what we are. And we pray that you would direct what we shall be so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. And all God's people said, amen.